Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. My name is Royful Brown and I am back, back, back in London. I'm back in the land of my birth, England, uh, to discuss uh, matters from my adopted home, the US, but also matters which are very germane and pertinent to Europe at the moment, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and exactly how that is going. Uh, today, I have with me a smorgasbord of experts and friends. Uh, first off, uh, we welcome back Carolina Vigora, who uh, graced our podcast just uh, some, uh, what, two, three months ago, uh, Carolina. Carolina, please remind us of your eminence and where you, uh, where you lecture. Hello, everybody. It's very nice to be here again. Uh, I lecture at the Warsaw University, although now I'm on sabbatical and based in Berlin in the Robert Bosch Academy. Uh, we're also joined by Michael Donahue. Michael, uh, tell us the, the great podcast that you host. And I believe you had an eminent and entertaining guest on last week. I did. We were really lucky to have one great uh, Royfield Brown. That uh, I still cannot spell your name, even though it is literally up front uh, of my face. Uh, I still have trouble with it. So I host Tilting at Windmills and the last episode was with Royfield and it was a pretty uh, engaging episode. Ah, uh, thank you. This is a global show. And just to prove it, uh, we've gone from Poland to America. And now we're going to go to Ouagadougou in West Africa. Ben Mendelssohn, how are you, sir? And why are you on my stage? <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. You are such a gracious host. Um, I am here because you have enticed me to come here. And I have partaken in, in the uh, some more of your podcasting, which is expertly done. I can give you the viewpoint from here in Burkina Faso. Got it. Thank you, Ben Mendelssohn. We're also joined by uh, my good friend on this app, a geopolitical expert and somewhat of a raconteur and author and somewhat of a change agent, Greg Sattel. Uh, Greg Sattel, what's the weather like in Philadelphia today? It's always sunny in Philadelphia, Royfield, except uh, for today when it's cloudy and unseasonably cold. You know what? I need to get back to watching that. Great show. Great show indeed. And bringing up the rear, 
uh, we have Andrea. Uh, Andrea, um, tell us about the best thing you've done today. <laughs> um, the best thing I had today was just a few minutes ago where I was having a conversation, imagining a world with more women leaders and what that might look like. Huh. Not exactly an unapropos topic, considering we're going to be uh, focusing in on uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, considering that uh, the current prime minister of Finland is a single mother who's raised by a single mother and is head of the executive of a country that could be joining NATO, as is the current prime minister of Sweden. Uh, but first, we're going to go on to the topic which has exercised uh, diplomats and uh, people all around the world, which is the Russian um, invasion of Ukraine. Specifically, I believe we're at a turning point at the moment, or at least potentially at a turning point, with these current Russian advances in eastern Ukraine. Krish, towns like Severodonetsk and the town nearby Lehman, it's reported tonight, are close to being taken by the Russians. And if that advance continues, it is significant in terms of the Russian so-called second phase of this war taking the Donbass. Yesterday, President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke about up to 100 Ukrainian soldiers every day losing their lives in Donbass. Now, the front line, of course, is hundreds of miles long, and these artillery duels continue along its length with an incredible amount of ferocity, as myself and our team here discovered firsthand this morning. The military section at Kharkiv Cemetery is a graveyard of two halves. You can tell where the dividing line is by the flags. Some are faded, tattered, adorn the headstones of soldiers, many of whom died in the last conflict down in Donbass eight years ago. The flags in the other part, though, are new. They are vivid. The soil is fresh. The families at the very first stage of grief. Greg Sutel, I'm going to come to you first, sir. The Russians have undoubtedly made advances in eastern Ukraine in the last week. Is this the vaunted Russian offensive that we were told was going to happen after they withdrew from northern Ukraine? And what capacity do the Ukrainians, do you believe, have to stop this advance? My personal feeling, and, and I'm not a military expert, but my personal feeling is this isn't at all that advance. I mean, that was supposed to be an advance to encircle all of Donbass. What they have seemed to have done is focused on this little area around Severodonetsk. And they do seem to be making some progress, but it seems to be only a progress of, of maybe a kilometer or a mile a day. Certainly nothing like the Ukrainian counteroffensive outside of Kharkiv, which I think two weeks ago, you know, they moved 25, 30 miles in a week and now seem to be consolidating those gains. But this is really the first time that Russia seems to, to be making real progress. And that in itself is interesting and worrying and underlines the need 
for the Western allies to give more support to Ukraine. Greg says that the West needs to give more support to Ukraine. At least from a Russian perspective, it seems to me like the West is doing an awful lot to support Ukraine. Is there anything materially or diplomatically uh, that the West could be doing or specifically Poland could be doing to help with the with the Russian advances in the east of its country? This is a very good question, um, you know. And especially because it seems that the nature of this war is also protean, so to say. So in the first phase, the Russians wanted to um, to occupy Ukraine basically very quickly. They uh, basically believe, the Kremlin basically believes that, um, that Ukraine is a kind of a rough state which you can just occupy within three days. Well... This wasn't successful, uh, so they they changed this strategy, uh, and they they basically now put stress on two goals. The first goal is to focus on the eastern Ukraine, and this is unfortunately looking uh, quite successful right now. So, whereas a couple of weeks ago they basically only had Kherson. Now they do have Mariupol, they do have Donetsk, Luhansk, so it seems that this eastern um, concentration was, the concentration on on the eastern part of of Ukraine is a quite effective one. Secondly, uh, however, what they want to do is they want to, to, to make this war as long as possible. So apart from this um, this this um, eastern steps that they are doing, they are probably most probably going to 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 send some uh, bombs, some uh, some uh, um, uh, fly, uh, um, planes to Kiev, to Lviv, from time to time. Right. So this is going to be a very long war. Now, in this situation, one what can what what more can can the West do? I think. Um, they're still the same. Uh, this the same two uh, most important um, ways of help. The first, of course, is diplomatic, and uh, I think there is. It's 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 not possible to do enough. You you always you you always have to do as long as as much as possible, diplomatically diplomatically always trying to 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 lead to any kind of consensus consensus here well secondly unfortunately uh, this also seems that well diplomat diplomacy is important but it's not enough so the west will have to continue sending weapons to ukraine and so sending material aid medical aid and also with time also probably creating some kind of a, of a new martial plan in order to save uh, Ukrainian uh, economy. Thank you for that full answer. Uh, Greg, so I'm, I'm going to come back to you, Greg. The Russian plan seems to be to capture the rest of the Lugansk Oblast. If the Russians capture this, let's say, the next two weeks, and then fortify their positions, will that put pressure on Zelensky and the Ukrainians uh, to come to an accommodation with Putin's Russia soon? I don't think so. I mean, I think that if there's been a consistent error throughout this crisis, it's to it's that 
observers have continually underestimated both Ukrainian resolve and Ukrainian capability. And so let's say they they do take the rest of so what what happens after that? We're still going to be in a war of attrition. Russia is still going to have to supply its troops with something more than the, you know, 1970s era tanks it seems to be sending in there now. And the West needs to continually supply Ukraine. Really, it's, it's sort of a race between how long Russia can hold out and, and what kind of resolve there is to keep supporting Ukraine. A number of experts have put the tipping point somewhere around August set a number of different reasons where things in Russia really, really start going downhill. That remains to be seen, but I think that's we need to really watch. Not so much the one in Luhansk, but the battle for Western resolve. Dr. Dan, you're, you're an ex-military man. Well, welcome to the stage. Have you been surprised that the Russians have been able to at least rally and actually to advance? Um, I think the overwhelming narrative has been, at least us in the West has been, Russia had its ass kicked in, in northern Ukraine and then it decided to strategically withdraw, knowing that it couldn't affect regime change. It then said or at least um, analysts thought there'd be a big push in the east immediately afterwards. That did not happen. But we are seeing uh, these advances now after they have a new supreme commander who's looking at the whole of the battle space. From a military point of view, are the Russians completely and utterly reordering their military forces? And is this something which we should be wary of, considering, as Greg uh, has told us, that they're pulling out mothball tanks, uh, so egregious of their losses actually being in eastern Ukraine? Yeah, thanks, Roy, for the great question. Um, I'm not a full military tactician. Um, my background is was an infantry military officer. Uh, and looking at the battlefield field space um, and the response, I'm not surprised about anything. Um, one of the real things is that there's always the fog of war and it's push and pull. Um, and when you're having a combination of sorts of war, so this is like urban warfare meets some high terrain and different terrain uh, type warfare, you have to balance some of the things, the logistics, all the things that we've seen and that many have pontificated over. So I'll, I'll spare the room and spare the topic. So I'm not surprised as my, uh, as my uh, question, uh, as my point. But I do think, um, to Greg's point, it literally is the resolve on both sides, Western support um, and time to default and economic sanctions and all the other things uh, that will affect uh, the Russian um, resolve on that side. And then the other players, um, uh, be however you decide to call them, bad actors, supporters on both sides, where they fall in as people start to ally themselves um, how long can they hold out? What's in it for them and their citizens or for their political aspirations? So there are many factors to the battlefield play. Um, and, and as people choose sides, countries choose sides specifically with their voting or with their non-voting, uh, 
these will affect that landscape. So I, I would say that. But uh, when you talk about what's going on underground, yeah, I, I think it's uh, more of supply. It's more of resource and continuous resource. And where does it become that thin line where it is uh, the Western allies and all the allies are called out saying that they are supporting the war, not like it's something new, uh, but where it becomes a, an excuse to then say, well, therefore, because you're doing X, Y, Z, this is a declaration of war. Uh, I think that's going to come into play as a, as a tactic, as a final corner tactic. I'm done. Thank you, Dr. Dan. Ben Mendelssohn, let, let's move to you in West Africa. One of the ramifications of the blockade of Ukraine's ports is that its grain shipments, which many of them go to Africa, have, have been blocked, have been stopped. Uh, and this comes at, at a time when certain people now have looked around at, at, at Africa's support or ambivalence, dare I say, for its support of, of Ukraine. Is there a, a real worry in, let's say, in, in Burkina Faso that the grain shipments to Africa are going to start um, a, a food crisis? Um, obviously, it has inflationary pressures throughout the rest of the world, but they seem to be potentially more acute for Africa. Um, how is Africa viewing uh, the blockage of those uh, Black Sea ports? It's actually pretty vital right now. It's it's another crisis, and and you know, frankly, uh, in West Africa right now, there's a bit of crisis fatigue because it's like one thing after another. But food security is actually the most immediate issue. They've always been uh, both Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger are sort of the three countries in in the Sahel region. Uh, who all have have been, had the, the largest needs. Uh, there's like 22 million people here in Burkina Faso, and 2 million people have been displaced from the north because of uh, jihadist terrorists. So their security issues are, are a crisis. Then there was uh, uh, coups both in uh, uh, Mali and in Burkina Faso and in Guinea. So there's uh, unstable government issues. And then there's been a drought here, uh, so that uh, it's been hard for them to produce uh, the, the grains that they have here and, uh, you know, coming from climate change. So um, it, it becomes a ripple effect. So right now, um, they're, they're razor focused on the invasion in, uh, of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, they really need to get that, um, that, that grain delivered here within the next couple of months because, you know, they're, they, they have expectations of, of, of having problems seasonally. And it's now getting into the point where the, in, within the next month, um, they, they need a lot more help than, than normal. So it's, it's definitely uh, top of mind. May I ask Ben a quick question, Rafael? Absolutely. So Ben, your wife is actually the Brazilian ambassador to Burkina Faso. And I know that Brazil has their own issues with agriculture, especially with the lack of potash coming from the region, from Belarus and other places, is really affecting the agricultural sector in Brazil. So how does that play out? Because it seems to me you have an almost unique perch of views of both into Brazil and into Africa. Yeah, thank you for that, Greg. You're, you're absolutely right. 
agriculture in, in Brazil is, is uh, one, of, one of its largest industries. And they, they also export a lot, but they are dependent on Russian uh, fertilizer. And um, that's partially one of the reasons why they've been a little reticent uh, of, uh, of going against Russia and being too, too much towards uh, Ukraine. So, so it affects their, their foreign policy as well. So it is interesting because we're sort of caught in the middle. So we're, we're at the, the, you know, in one point where we're being called to try to do what we can to help, uh, you know, people in need here in West Africa. And at the same time, uh, there are, you know, very specific uh, issues in, in Brazil, particularly because there's a, a very important national election coming up in October. So a lot of the uh, decisions are, are being made politically, and that complicates matters. Thank you for that excellent question, Greg. And and it touched on something where I want to go next, which was the kind of diplomatic uh, support. Uh, because if we look at uh, the whole 54 nations that make up the continent of Africa, it's veered from outright uh, support for Ukraine to actually um, Eritrea being a fervent supporter uh, of Putin. But many African regimes have been somewhat in the middle. And, and Ben, you've told us there that there is a, a, a very solid reason why, other than just this, the symbolic uh, rape and invasion of one country by another. There are other concerns which other regimes have. Uh, Michael, I'm going to come, come to you. If this conflict is going to go on for, let's say, nine months, 12 months, two years, uh, do you think uh, America... Uh, will potentially, tire is the wrong word, but I can't think of a better word right now, be fatigued with constant uh, Ukrainian demands, requests is probably a, a more apropos word, for extra military support. Do you think that America and the West actually have the fortitude uh, for a long engagement in Ukraine in terms of being its main military supplier? Well, I think there's an argument to be made that the U.S. is used to being in a state of fatigue uh, for many things. So, you know, there's already been pushback about Biden's $40 billion uh, installment to Ukraine. And I think it's it's going to really depend on the state of the U.S. economy if it does last multiple years, which I'm, I'm really not uh, of the mind that it will be. Um, the uh, the Treasury yesterday um, blocked Russia from using U.S. banks as a conduit to pay off uh, Russian debt obligations. Uh, the central bank in Russia uh, cut the interest rate of the ruble again um, because of the internal demand of uh, Russian exporters being forced legally uh, to convert uh, dollars into rubles. Um, and, you know, the fact that petrodollars are the language of the oil industry, um, I think I think things are going to be very, very difficult for Russia financially uh, over the next several months. Uh, not to mention, you know, the, as someone mentioned before, the military issues with uh, the T-62 tanks um, and them basically removing any upper age limit for uh, new recruits in Russia. So now they can recruit 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, uh, if they volunteer. So I'm, I'm not as pessimistic, I, I don't think, as uh, many are. But maybe that's just me and 
maybe that's just my optimism. But I think America, as long as we're not really focused on it, we seem to be able to endure quite a bit of fatigue, as long as it's sort of a background noise. Thank you for that, Michael. Andrea, I'm going to come to you. One thing that this crisis has done, this this invasion has done, is to reinvigorate NATO. NATO has gone from being an almost semi-forgotten key part of the Western apparatus to something which is key and underpins all of our freedoms. Where do you stand with the accession of Finland and Sweden, and specifically looking at the, looking at Turkey's objections? Is this just a case of real politique? Do we need to take Erdogan around the back of the house, give him a bit of a slap and say, fix up? We have an existential crisis to the Western world on our hands here. This is not a time to play internal Turkish politics on, on the geopolitical stage. Or do we just say, this is one of the prices you have to pay if you have an organisation which has 30 plus uh, members in it, that you are going to have recalcitrant members uh, wanting uh, to politic around uh, widening NATO. I thanks, Royfield. Uh, I would go with the latter. Um, I think it's perfectly understandable at this point in time uh, that Finland and Sweden would want to join NATO. I think that is very much an unintended consequence uh, for Putin uh, and his actions in Ukraine, uh, despite the the debate that's out there about whether NATO expansion is actually triggered all of this. I think uh, Erdogan has to uh, come to terms with this and live with it. And I do, in fact, think that this is the consequence of when you're dealing with um, a large member organization like that. I don't have, I'm not an expert per se in this, but I think it's interesting to look into Erdogan's leadership and his ties also to Russia. And I have to say to the former uh, President Donald Trump uh, and explore uh, his objections even further for what might not exactly be on the table, but what might be behind his objections as well. Carolina, uh, Poland is very obviously on the front line of the humanitarian crisis outside of Ukraine's uh, borders. We now know that, uh, was it 5.5 million Ukrainians have, have left their homes and left their home of Ukraine and there were some 10 million plus displaced within Ukraine. Could you give us some idea of how Poland is coping with it some three months into uh, the invasion? So Poland has received uh, approximately 3 million of Ukrainians, which is quite a large number. And it's, it's unprecedented after the Second World War in this, in this part of the world. So um, even if um, the Germans, for example, received 1 million of Syrian refugees in 2015, they received this million throughout a year. And we received those 3 million of people throughout a couple of uh, weeks or months. So this is uh, quite uh, quite a difference. But astonishingly, it has been coped very, very well. Uh, why is this? Well, firstly, um, one uh, says very often today in Poland that Poland is not a state, but rather a, a, a big NGO. And uh, it is true that most of the people that have uh, that that have that that have been relocated to Poland have been helped by 
citizens, by, by, by civil society organizations, by NGOs. And this is very important. Um, so you, you might say that we have a very important uh, civil society moment right now. We haven't had such a moment since the Solidarity Movement in 1980. I'm, uh, and this is not only my, my opinion, it is opinion of, of many, many people whom, whom I talk to and, and many experts. So this is quite remarkable. Remarkable is also that uh, there is not much fatigue uh, in the behavior of people who are helping the Ukrainians. So still people are offering private houses, still they are making sandwiches, giving jobs, uh, raising money, sending arms, sending um, uh, medical aid, sending food and um, whatever you wish, actually, to, to, to Ukraine. So this is, this is one thing. Another thing I wanted to, to say is that uh, in this situation, it is only um, uh, uh, an oversimplification to think that it is only Ukrainians coming into Poland, because actually the movement is in both ways. So you have, on one hand, a lot of people who come, but since March, it is ever less, ever fewer people coming in. But you also have, from the very beginning, another story going on. First, those were men who were leaving Poland, for example, in order to take part in defense of Ukraine, Ukrainian men. Now, it is also women and children who are coming back to those regions of Ukraine that seems re relatively stable. So, for example, to Western Ukraine. And so this situation is uh, far from being stable. It is very plastic. It changes every day. The dynamics are very are changing every day. Just, just want to just remain with you just for one more question before we move on to our second item. From a Western European perspective, Hungary and Poland were always kind of lumped together as the the Eurosceptic, uh, slightly illiberal. I know we talked about this before when, when you came on to uh, the show a couple of months ago, but they're seen as the slightly illiberal European partners. It seems to be that now um, your prime minister has put clear blue water between himself and uh and, and Hungary's position is that just my perception or is or is that something which is kind of like palpable uh within uh Polish politics that actually Hungary is maybe slightly trying to play both sides of the fence here whereas Poland is absolutely staunch in its condemnation of Russia's invasion Oh, I think it's a little bit different. It's, you know, it's like when we say West, we say it at is, uh, as if it was a monolith, but obviously it's not. The West is the US and Europe and, and actually Western Europe and Eastern and Central Europe belong in, in, in many ways already to, to, to the West. So again, exactly like this, if you say Central and Eastern Europe, this is also not a monolith. And in the change of relations between Warsaw and Budapest, you basically see how this monolith falls apart in a new way right now. So this probably is connected with history. Um, Hungary doesn't have this long-term uh, history of experiencing uh, Russian imperialism. Of course, it did experience it, but it is nothing in comparison to what Poland and, for example, the Baltic states experienced. 
So you don't have to, to speak to polls. It is enough to, to, to hear what the Kaya Kallas, the, the, the prime minister of Estonia says. She says, uh, the, uh, a neighboring house is on fire. Our house is very probable to be on fire soon. This is exactly what what the experience of this this Russian neighbors is, and it's quite quite different than than the than the, the experience of Hungary. So there is a divide uh, clearly between Poland and Hungary. It has been articulated very clearly by by various representatives of the of the of the United Right Coalition in Poland. But let me just add one thing or two things briefly. First thing, um, I said previously that Poland is an NGO. And this is very important because to, 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 if you observe the situation closely, you will see that, of course, the government made the, the right decision to open the border with Ukraine at the very beginning. But as for who receives the refugees, who shows the solidarity, it's not the state. It's the, it's the civil society organizations and some local governments. So. The government in Warsaw would like to capitalize on that. And this is very important to, to grasp that. Uh, so this is one thing. Another thing, many of my friends from, uh, from Western countries ask me, well, if you are behaving in such a way, if your government is behaving differently than previously, does it mean that they became perhaps more liberal? No, they didn't. They are not liberal Democrats. In fact, they are not Democrats at all. They didn't change. They are sovereignists. In this sense, they protect, they try to protect Ukrainian sovereignty. And in this respect, their interests is, are for some time um, the same interests as uh, the interests of the Western Europe. But once this crisis is over, and sooner or later it will be over, they will go their way. And this way is not liberal democratic. Thank you for that, Professor Karolina Vigora. Are you in Berlin or in Warsaw at the moment? Today I am in Warsaw. There you go. On the spot. Ask uh, Karolina a question. So, Karolina, I'd be particularly interested to hear your views about how the Polish-Ukrainian relationship has evolved. Because having lived in both countries, it's my perception that 20 years ago, the perception among Poles was that it wasn't very close with Ukrainians. It tended to be somewhat patronizing, and they were considered to be some kind of Russians. Not exactly Russians, but some kind. Yakubit. And that really seemed to shift in 2004 and five after the Orange Revolution. Since then, it seems to me that Poland has become more and more entwined with Ukraine and more and more supportive of Ukraine. Is that how you would say it? Yes, exactly. I would definitely say so. So you can say that the Poles and Ukrainians have like two histories together. The first history is of, of Poles actually colonizing that what is today Ukraine. Apart from Russian imperialism in this region, there was also Polish imperialism. And part of this imperialism was to colonize uh, what is today Ukraine and, and Belarus. Um, and this led to competition, to, to many resentments, and during the Second World War also to bloody conflict between Poles and Ukrainians uh, with mass murders and revenges. So this is one history of Poles and Ukrainians. 
And this is a bloody history full of atrocities and full of resentments. But luckily, we also have this second history. And the second history is the history, as you rightly said, of the last, perhaps not even 20, but 30 years. So it is a history of democratic Poland and democratic Ukraine trying to to cope with each other, to, to find a new, um, a new, new way they have these relations. And you are right, this, this did start, uh, the, the, the change, the shift uh, on a mass level started in, in 2004, 2005. So the Orange Revolution first, supporting Mr. Yushchenko, and then uh, and going, to, they, going to Kiev, protesting together. This was the first one. The second one, of course, was the Euromaidan, and again, the same thing, marches in Warsaw, in Krakow, in, in, in support of Ukrainians, many posts going to Kiev, helping. Um, and, and now there is this fast solidarity, uh, which, is, which is connected. So still in the, in the older generations in, in, in Poland, you might hear, yes, well, but we should remember about voting, etc., etc. But the next sentence, even for those people from the from the older generations who still remember, the next sentence is, "But okay, we'll talk about it later because now they need help, and that's that's the whole story." So, so yes, I think that this this is one of the the most successful examples of reconciliation in politics. Thank you for that, Carolina. But now is the point. If you're in the audience, if you would like to uh, contribute on uh, the Russian advances in uh, eastern Ukraine or just on the whole Ukrainian uh, battle space. Now is the time. So if you're in the audience, raise your hand and we'll call you up. But I am going to institute a Greg Sattel rule, uh, considering that time is very much of the essence. Only make one point, please. Uh, Rob Gillian, you've come up on stage. Speak now, sir. Oh, thank you, uh, Mr. Royfield Brown. Via the Ukraine, the United States and I was going to say uh, calls to action or whatever. I'm looking at an article. This is on the World War One centenary site, subtitled Continuations and Begin- Beginnings. The, the article is called The Rape of Belgium Revisited. So there's entreaties from both sides all around the world. Again, pro and whatever you want to call anti-Ukraine. I saw a large lit digital billboard in North Carolina, driving west out of Charlotte, North Carolina, that said, we stand with Ukraine. But I'm just saying there's, uh, there's propaganda on, on both sides. It's difficult to, uh, in some ways, if you're trying to look at something from a, a pragmatic, let's say, balanced point of view, um, it's very difficult to do. I mean, one side says, well, we have the more compelling argument, or this is our, this is the reason for why this why this has occurred. Again, looking at the title of the room, Mid-Atlantic, I am from the Mid-Atlantic as far as the Mid-Atlantic, as far as states are concerned with the United States. So the title is a bit confusing. So if, if the title means we're meeting in the middle of Atlantic, say Americans uh, Americans and uh, British uh, European continentals, then you know, perhaps that's how that's informed. But at least in my mind, Americans that are viewing this as far as like from a detached, pragmatic point of view, we see a lot of entreaties to both sides. And I would equate that to some of the things that occurred during the First World War with the struggle for Europe. All right, Rob, in the West. Rob, Rob yes. you know what? Uh, because time is so of the certainly. essence. I'll, I'll cut it off. Certainly. All right. Thank you. Uh, but but to, yeah, you, you, you jumped in uh, and made your point. And, and just for what it's worth, if I was starting the podcast now, 
as opposed to when I did in 2014 before coming to California. I would never have called it Mid-Atlantic. To me, yes, it means the meeting of, of two cultures in the middle of the Atlantic. I was not aware of uh, the Mid-Atlantic states being coined as such. But there you go. I should have done my research. Literally just one point. If you'd like to speak on uh, Ukraine, please just flash your mic if you just come on to the stage. All right, uh, Piotr, uh, just quickly, though, just one point, because we are going to move on to our second item. So, Piotr Curzon. The Turks are being uh, problematic with the Swedes, particularly the Swedes and the, the Finns, the Finns primarily because of their funding uh, and, and sort of obstruction to a certain treaty. Uh, but the Swedes, it's all to do with the PKK. This is primarily a domestic issue. Uh, with the with Erdogan up for re-election next year, uh, and him wanting to look as a strong man uh, in, in in his domestic issues, um, the Turks care first and foremost about the economy, as most almost any population do in any election. So um, that is going to be a sticking point, and frankly, I'm surprised by the lack of uh, acknowledgement uh, it has had in terms of reaction. The NATO alliance, I think, in large parts, are hoping that it will just sort of be dealt with and go away. Um, assuming that the sort of the Swedes and the Finns being one of the more uh, agreeable groups uh, will sort of find some way forward with the uh, with the, the Turks. But that being said, uh, the foreign minister of Turkey will be meeting, I think, Blinken, is it tomorrow or sometime soon? Uh, and I guarantee you that will be high on the agenda. The Americans trying to find a way to maybe not appease the Turks, but at least uh, be like, all right, look, if you... If you do this, then we'll do that for you and, and so on and so forth. So, um, I mean, Russian advancements, uh, I wouldn't overplay these if I'm honest. Uh, it's not great, um, but the biggest win continues and will be for the entirety of the war at this point, I think, Mariupol. The, the wins that they've got in the Donbass region are, are very minuscule. Fighting is deadly, uh, from what I've been reading and from friends on the ground who are there. Um, that have been telling me, but in terms of actual impact on Russia's greater grand strategy in the uh, in the Donbass region, it's well, you just have to put it in the context of what Russia originally wanted. So it's a complete and utter mess for them. Um, and uh, and and the and the uh, and we'll we'll see the overarching impacts. I think of this fourteen billion dollar bill uh, by uh, by the US uh, coming to fruition quite soon. So, um, yeah, wait and see. I think the next couple of weeks could be quite interesting in terms of just how much greater um, uh, support, this uh, momentum this could give the Ukrainian forces. That being said, I was reading, um, and in the Ukraine sit-rep room we had, uh, I was listening in, but we, that's the beauty of the room, uh, we had people come and share suddenly that apparently the Americans and some Western uh, allies are beginning to be like, well, when we can't continue to fund you uh, or at least provide you the answer that you're demanding. Ukraine. Uh, that wasn't verified, but it was something that was apparently in French and German news. Um, so that's something I'm going to keep a lookout for, because as I said from early on, what, at the beginning of the month, it may, the, the, the end of the war or, or a, a concession to the war and some kind of negotiation may not well come from the Russians or the Ukrainians. It may well come from the West's uh, alliance being like, look, Ukraine, we physically cannot keep this up in terms of supporting you. The global ramifications and instabilization that or destabilization that will come from this and your uh, unwillingness to give up the territory is just not something we can we can we can support. So it might be that the uh, the uh, the Ukrainians are, are forced to come to some kind of peace agreement. Again, I'm making a lot 
often conjectures here, but they may be forced to sort of come to the table to at least properly begin negotiating just because the West are like, look, we can't keep this up for the sake of the global economy. Um, but yeah, Me- that's, uh, that's where my mind's been in the past few days. And uh, I'll hand back to you. Thank you for that, Mr. K. Uh, we did touch on a, a, a few of those um, issues and, and points, but thank you for uh, condensing them into a nice little end of this segment. So I'm taking it that nobody else on stage uh, wants to contribute about Ukraine. If you do, quickly flash your mic, otherwise it's going to be time to move on. Carolina, thank you for joining us. I know it's a little bit late for you. You can now safely go. I said one hour. I think I've just about delivered on that. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for having me here again. And uh, listen, uh, thank you for providing uh, your expert commentary and insight. Thank you. Thank you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fundamentally, what this room is about is to try and understand US and UK politics, but also to promote civil discourse. I think we can all see that at a time when many opinion writers are saying that America is going through a cold civil war and we've had Brexit, which exposed so many fissures within UK society, the time for us, whether we are right or left, to still to be able to communicate and converse with each other is even more important. And that's what this room tries to promote. I've always been I've always been of the belief that the Commonwealth, the common ground is absolutely, absolutely vitally important. And it's for all of us, whether we're left or right, to inhabit that ground and to stake a claim to it. 
and to metaphorically be able to meet each other, whether we are whether we agree or disagree with their politics. So that's what Mid Atlantic is all about. So there you go. That's been me, Royfield Brown. You can back channel me. You can send me an email at royfield@gmail.com if you'd like to discuss future shows. I'm going to try and do these once a week. Toodle pip. Goodbye. Look after yourselves. Look after your loved ones, and make sure that you look after yourself also. Bye bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.